What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. This morning we're going to be reading from Psalm 119. And we're going to start with uh, verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let me cry, come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me. For I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here downtown, and we're wrapping up our Christ in the Psalms uh, summer series this morning with our third look at Psalm 119. So quick overview if you've been with us or even if you haven't, if you're joining us online, Um, Psalm 119 is so long and there's so many verses. We looked at kind of three different dimensions of it. One was kind of God's word over us in week one, kind of its authority in our lives because God is God and he's given us his law. Um, Week two was God's word in us. And last week, Miguel was talking about meditation and getting the word in us so that it can do its transformative, renewing work. And then this morning in part three, we wanna look at God's word to us And a lot of these verses are reflective of like, what does God's word mean to us? And uh, from here, we're going to go on to a three-week mission series. And we're going to be looking at worshiping together, fellowshipping together, growing together in community, and then also um, living on mission together. And then we'll be back in Matthew. So that's why you're starting to see some advertising promotions around getting your next Matthew journal, which is still about three, three, four weeks out for us downtown. But that's kind of where we're going for the fall. And then we'll be back in kind of more expositional going through the life of Jesus and the stories of Jesus this fall. So let's pause and pray for a moment, and then we'll hit Psalm 119 this third time. And Lord, we just pause to again acknowledge that we're, we're not simply reading words on a page and trying to make sense of them, or we are eager to hear from you this morning. If we believe that these words are your words in an ultimate sense, then they bring life and they bring health and they bring peace. Uh, We want to plant these words in our hearts, in our minds, um, deeply embed them even in our emotions, Lord, um, that we feel toward your word and toward your law, what Becca just read, this psalmist here who wrote this, how he felt. And we wanna understand why he felt this way and how we can feel this way if we want to. So Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. 
Amen. I want each of you to take just a moment, and you may even write a couple things down here, and think of something you really, really enjoy. Okay? It may be a relationship. It may be a physical, tangible possession. It may be an experience. But it's something that you would say, this brings me pleasure, this brings me satisfaction, this brings me delight, this deeply satisfies me, it excites me, it lights up my heart, I go back to it or I pursue it time and time again. And as I said, you may even write something down or a couple things down. And I want us to think for just a moment as you're thinking about like, what, what delights me? What brings me great joy in life? I want us to think about both what those things are and why those particular things cause us to feel that way. So I say, what? What makes you feel that way? And I don't want you to over-spiritualize this. I don't want you to be like, oh, you know, the Bible or being in church together. And I mean, I'm sure to some degree, hopefully those things do bring you delight. But I just think like across all spectrums of humanity and culture, I'm not trying to get you to be spiritual here. I'm just trying to say, what brings you delight? What, what, what gives you so much joy? It like sucks you in and hours and hours and hours later, you're like, where did the time go? As here at this venue last night, there was a wedding here, and I guess the couple actually met playing video games, and they, they met each other's avatars and were fighting against each other before they ever met in person. And so they said, still, when their family gets together, they can play hours and hours and hours of Halo and all these other video games online competing against each other. And that may not be your thing, but especially with COVID and shutdowns and solitary confinement or whatever the positive spin on that is, you know, maybe some of you are binging on Netflix and you're catching up on a series or 10 and you get lost in like an entire season of something and you're like, holy cow, like that entire day is now gone. Or it may be for some of you, it's activity. You know, we live in Colorado, so it's activity out in the mountains. Or for some of you, it's relaxation. It's like doing nothing out in the mountains. And time just flees away as you enjoy maybe reading a good book or reading something online. Or maybe some of you, the first thing you thought of was like good food or drink or time with good friends. Or some of you watching your kids do something that they enjoy. And just the pleasure of parenting and seeing their delight is what brings you delight. Maybe it's the, you know, the thrill of putting something together for your vocation, closing a deal, um, uh, organizing something. It could be any number of things. Um, and then I want you to just think for a moment, why, why do you delight in those particular, again, people, possessions, or experiences? And I kind of summarize this with three things that I think a lot of this boils down to. We love the things that we love. We delight in the things that we delight in. Number one, because they satisfy some sense or desire. And by sense, I mean like just that God gave you five senses. Most of you have, you know, four of them or three and a half of them after COVID, right? So you don't, you don't smell things anymore. You don't really taste things anymore, some of you. Um, but But a good meal just like lights up those senses and things are firing. You're like, this is good. Secondly, it may be because of how they make you feel. Like something just makes you feel happy or it makes you feel relaxed. It makes you feel content. It makes you feel satisfied. It makes you feel safe. It makes you feel known. 
and accepted. It makes you feel affirmed. Okay? It makes you feel in awe. I mean, there was like a lot of lightning last night if you were up and, and that sort of thing. Like there may be a delight because it's just like, it's, it's just incredible. It's awesome. Or have a sense of accomplishment or any number of feelings that get triggered by something in your life that you're like, this is a delightful feeling. Um, and then one final reason I think why we delight in the things that we delight in is because of what they either promise you or what you believe at least they will do for you. So a lot of times we're looking to something with a sense of hope, like, I think this will accomplish this for me. I think this will help me achieve some important goals. And I want to make an observation here before I move on from just these, just delight in general. And the observation is, my guess is nobody told you to delight in those particular things. Like, I didn't tell our teenage daughter, you need to delight in espresso tonics. And I didn't tell my boys, like, you need to delight in ice hockey. There was never a point in time where my parents sat me down and said, you need to delight in smoked meat and college football. We just do, right? There's something instinctive in us that gets sparked of like, I like this. And what I want to point out is that this shows me we're actually wired for delight. You ever think about this? The, the world that we live in is not some stark utilitarian, it gets the job done kind of place. God has littered his creation with like gratuitous beauty and delight. Things that we smell, things that we taste, things that we feel that are, they're beautiful and they're soothing and they're delicious. And you can obviously delight in things that are overtly sinful. You can make an idol out of something that's good and you can love it too much. You can worship it instead of God. But my point is delight is not inherently wrong. And I think a lot of these other things that we inherently, instinctively, naturally delight in without ever even thinking about it are actually like a little foretaste. They're like to whet your appetite for a true and ultimate maximum delight. So this is my theme this morning. This is what I want to unpack for the next few minutes. In this chapter, Psalm 119, the psalmist is saying, God wants to fill your soul with abundant delight through his word. Okay. And this lengthy psalm unpacks this in four ways. So as some of you are beginning to know me, um, these are all Ps, okay? This will maybe help some of you remember it, okay? There are proclamations here, proclamations of delight. There are pictures of delight. There's a premise and there's a promise, okay? So first of all, let me just note that, that one of the most astonishing things about this psalm to me as you read through it, and we read through two sections of it this morning, it's astonishing to me that the psalmist does not simply say, I know God's law. It's important for me to know it. It's important for me to understand it. He doesn't even say it's important for me to respect it. I mean, it is my authority. I need to obey it. The astonishing thing is he says, I love God's law. And 10 times in this psalm, he says, God's law is my delight. And I think he actually felt that way because he wrote a 22 stanza, 176 verse acrostic poem expressing his delight in the law of God. Okay, in a week one, so a couple weeks ago, I mentioned like going off to Christian university and first day and you're checking in and you're like, okay, I'm here checking in and they give you all this paperwork and they give you like this 75 page student manual, student handbook, okay? And some people are in there and like, oh yeah, I agree with most of this. 
I, I, I choose to respect this. I'll honor this over the next four years while I'm here. But nobody sits there and is like, yes, this is amazing. And they go back to their dorm room and they start composing. You know, here's my ode to the student handbook. Or let me, let me paint something that, that, that captures the overflow of my affection for the student handbook. But that's in essence what the psalmist is doing here. And I think that's astonishing because for most of us, again, even if we respect the rules and choose to play by the rules, very few of us would probably just express it this way. I love the law. Okay? Now, a lot of us would say, I love, I appreciate, I, I, I guess I even delight in, in some sense, what the law does for me. You know, it's like going to the dentist, right? And this is how, this is my, this is my love-hate relationship or like mild hate and greater hate relationship. That's probably more accurate with the dentist, okay? So they, you, you go once every six years or however often, you know, you need to go about once every six years for me. And they have you lay in this chair with these odd smells and like sounds of drills and like torture instruments all around you. And then they recline you in the most vulnerable position and tie a diaper around your neck. And then they, they I mean, they're very careful to like stick both hands in your mouth and ask you if you're comfortable, <laughs> right? And then they start bringing things very slowly to your mouth that look like murder weapons, okay? And this is how I feel with the dentist. I'm like, I know that this is good for my gum health and my teeth. And if they, they catch something, like I had a chipped tooth and they need to repair. So I'm like, I get it. Like that's good for me in the long term, but I do not delight in it. And maybe some of you are, are that way with the word of God, that, that you've yielded to it. Listen to me, you've yielded to it. You appreciate, I know on the whole it's good and I should be reading it. But you don't love it. You don't delight in it. And so the first thing that stands out to me here, I said proclamations of delight. So as you work your way through this psalm, there are literally dozens of these statements where he, it's interspersed all throughout. I'll give you just a few, okay? Five times here in this psalm, he says, God, I'm going after you and your word. And he says it this way, with my whole heart, okay? And I, and I hear that like when I took vows to my wife and we stood there at the altar and in front of a, a group of our friends and witnesses, we were saying like turning from all others and clinging only to you. And what neither of us meant by that is not that we don't love other people or care about other people or even sacrifice for other people. We were saying there's, there's a unique kind of covenant love that we're choosing and so we can say we wholeheartedly love one another, which doesn't mean I don't love other people or she doesn't love other people. It means there's a unique thing, a unique commitment. So he says that five times. Then verse 18, and I'm just gonna skim, skim through this real quick, okay? Verse 18, he says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So he's saying, again, it's not just something I need to eat and I know it's good for me. It's like broccoli of the Bible. You know, it's like, I hate it but it's good. He's like, I believe there are incredible, extraordinary, awe-inspiring things in this book, in this law. And God wants me not just to see them, but behold them, which is like to gaze intently at. It's not just, oh, I, I saw it. It barely registered, but it's a word that means I can't take my eyes off them because it's incredible to me. Verse 20, he says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. This is an overwhelming desire in the world of psychology today. We may say he has a fixation. 
a longing that speaks of yearning and a strong emotional attachment to something. I'm consumed with longing for your rules. Verse 31, he says, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. And it's the same verse from like early in Genesis where the first husband and wife cling to one another in intimacy and are like, I don't want to let go. I want to go through life clinging to you, loving you, enjoying you. Seven times in this psalm, he says, I hope in your law. Ten times in this psalm, he says, I love your law. Verse 111, your testimonies are the joy of my heart. And I want to just pause right here. My first question for you, whether you consider yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus or not, is just what two or three words would you choose to describe your feelings toward the word of God, the law of God? And it may range all the way from maybe someone's here and you're like, I actually do delight in the law. And some of you probably do. And man, that's awesome. Some of you may say, you know, I have just kind of an apathy toward it. Like, yeah, I feel like it's good for me. Some of you may actually have an antithope. You may say, like, I actually am disgusted by stuff in here. It's antiquated. It's, it's from a bygone era when people used to think differently. But I want you to, like, write down or at least capture in your mind two or three words that say, this is how I right now feel toward the law of God. I want to pause and just say, if you don't delight in the law of God the way the writer of this psalm does, at least be willing to consider why he feels this way, okay? And that's what we want to do with our time. And be willing to ask ourselves, what am I maybe missing that he saw, that he experienced? What am I maybe missing that I too could delight in something that God has given me, not to be a burden, but to be a delight, okay? So those are proclamations. Now, Point two, I said pictures of delight because this is kind of like fleshing it out. If those proclamations are like a skeletal structure and this supports the whole thing, but now like we want to put some meat on this and there are probably seven or eight different figures of speech in this psalm. I want to focus on just three of them in just a moment each where he's going to show you now with pictures the intrinsic value, the sensory value, and the directional value of the law of God. Okay, I said intrinsic value. So the, the first big metaphor, and it's all throughout, is he's saying God's law to me is like the richest treasure. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 72, he says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 127, I love your commandments above gold, above refined gold. In verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds a great spoil. Okay, let me take you inside the exciting world of economics for just a moment. There are three kinds of money. Um, some people who know way more about this than I do would say there are four or five or more than this, but three basic types of money. If you have paper bills in your wallet, if you're still one of those few people that carries actual money or coins, um, that's called fiat money. And what it means is it has no value, okay? That $20 bill has no value, except that the governing authority that issued it also issued a fiat that says this is worth $20. 
And then you have a different piece of paper that says it's worth $100 or $1,000 or $10,000 or I don't know how high bills get. But they have different denominations on them because the government that issued them says this should be honored as worth this much money. Does that make sense? Okay. That's fiat money. There's another kind of money that probably more of us use that's known as fiduciary money. It comes from the Latin for trust or faith. And that's like a check, you know? And again, like if, if you were to write a check this morning and put it in the offering plate or go pay for your lunch with the check as no one does anymore. Like church is the one place I still use a check, okay? Um, but that's fiduciary money because I'm, I'm writing something on a piece of paper that is essentially a promise that I will transfer that amount from my bank account to your bank account or a credit card is kind of a form of fiduciary money. You're making a, a promise like you swipe that plastic and my, our boys don't get this. They're like, can you take out the plastic thing and do, do the thing? Cause we want all this stuff. And we're like, well, that costs money. And they're like, no, it doesn't. It just, you just do the thing with the plastic thing. And then you get this stuff. Well, that's fiduciary because you're making a promise to pay. Then the third main type of money is called commodity money. And in this, in the Bible times, commodity could be like livestock. It could be olive oil. It could be seashells. Or like the psalmist is talking about here, it could be like gold and silver. And the idea of a commodity money is that there, there's inherent worth. It's not just a promise. It's not just an assigned value, but there's an actual value to it. Like silver and gold in limited quantities in the earth, and it's a precious metal, and it's refinable. And so therefore, it has actual value. And so if you go back to David's time, in the time of these Psalms, and you had a bunch of like thousands of pieces of gold and silver in the 10th century BC, you would be a very wealthy person. And that wealth could buy you power. It could buy you comfort. It could buy you all kinds of pleasure. That's why people still love money today. It's very few people actually are like, ha, 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 I love this pile of whatever, or this number in my account, it's more like, I love that this gives me power and control and pleasure and comfort. But I want you to understand, this is how the writer views God's law as like commodity money. He says it's intrinsically valuable. Not just that God said it's valuable and assigned something to it, it's intrinsically, inherently valuable. He'd rather have God's law than all the money in the world because he believes that it holds some value for his life now and forever. Okay, that's that first type of value, inherent. Now, there's also a sensory value here where he says, not only is God's word like the richest treasure, God's word is also like the tastiest food. Verse 103, he says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, I want you to understand the point here is not the nutritional value of scripture, okay? Now, the Bible makes that point, okay? You can go elsewhere and find that like, it's like all this stuff that the world is offering you is like wonder bread. And the Bible is like the greatest, richest, like superfood, like spirulina protein shake, right? And it's just amazing for you. And even if you don't initially like its taste, it's really, really nutritional for you. That's not what this is saying. The whole point here is simply a point of sweetness, Okay, you ever put something in your mouth, like maybe expecting one thing or maybe expecting even to find delight. You ever put something in your mouth, you're eating or you're drinking something with friends. You take that bite and you're like, mmm. Like, mmm. That is really good. Like, really good. 
not just food, that is really, really pleasant. Back when Micah, who's eight now, was five months old, we made his first stop over at Little Man Ice Cream. And uh, I'm still laughing at this video this week. I saved it in my favorite. So he's lying there in Marty's arm like this way, and she has a spoon in this hand, and she's laying this way. And um, as a little five-month-old man would do, like he's got his top button unbuttoned. You got to make room for the ice cream or something. He's just laying there, and he's screaming and ang- like, like everything's just falling apart. And this little spoon comes in and goes in his mouth. And he's like, and he stops. And he's like, here comes the spoon again. Okay. Micah was experiencing what this psalmist experienced. Again, not, not even the nutritional value of scripture, but just that's good. I like this. There's something really sensory pleasant about what God has for me, and I've tasted it, and I love it, and I want more of it. That's that picture, okay? Then there's a third kind of value, which is directional value, where he says God's law is not just the richest treasure, not just the sweetest or tastiest food. He says God's law is like the wisest counselor. Okay, and many of you have a counselor, you have a therapist, or you at least have older mentors who talk wisdom into your life. That's what he's saying about the Bible. Verse 24, he says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 105, that maybe many of you have committed to memory, where he says, your word is like a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And when I read that verse, I think back to this college internship I had, my only stint as a youth pastor where I realized I don't, God bless Luke and Angie and others, but I'm like, I I ain't doing this for life because it's just just a wild atmosphere of youth, right? But I took them on this tour uh, in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, of like Merrimack Caverns, which is like one of the old hideouts of Jesse James in the like wild outlaw days. And they take you on this well-lit tour on paved sidewalks, like deep into the heart of this cave. And they've got like all these, I mean, back then, not LED lights, but all these colored lights, like washing this seven-story tall um, limestone deposits. And it's like, it's fascinating. You've never seen anything like this. And it's cold and it's earthy and it's awesome. Then all of a sudden at this point in the tour, you're way back in there and they just turn out all the lights. And they're like, okay, This is what total darkness looks like. So it's not like being outside at night where you have like a little bit of starlight or the moon perhaps. It's like you're sitting there and you're like this and you see nothing when you're doing like this. And it's kind of a scary thing. And you realize like light is not just like this nice but not necessary guide. It's like, okay, if this guy doesn't get these things back on, we're dying in here. And light is life. And that's how the writer views God's law, not just helpful advice of like, you know, I'm mostly okay most of the time. And some of you may treat the word like this, like you're just living life because you have wisdom. You're smart. You're talented people. And like you run into something you don't understand and you consult scripture by just like opening it and pointing somewhere and reading somewhere, right? And you're like, oh, I guess I should marry her. And she didn't feel the same way, you know, so... You look for another verse. Um, that's, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, your word leads me out of darkness, out of ignorance, out of fear, out of death, out of despair, into true wisdom and life. Now, 
my question is, if you already feel this way, you're like, it's the richest treasure. It is my richest treasure. It is sweet to my taste in a sensory way. I love the law of God and I appreciate it in my life as something that guides me day after day after day into paths of wisdom and righteousness. That's great. If you don't feel that way and you want to feel that way, how would you get there? Okay. Point three is the premise of delight. Now, I've spent all this time showing you how the psalmist feels. Now I want to show you for a few moments why he feels that way. Okay, what is his delight based on? That's why I'm calling it a premise. There's something underlying this. that He looks at Scripture a certain way, and he's able to say these metaphors and these proclamations of it's my hope, it's my delight, it's my joy, it's everything to me. And I want to point out, first of all, it can't be, it can't be, that he's like, I delight in the law of God because there's all these rules and I have knocked it out of the park obeying the rules. And I delight in the law of God because I'm winning. I'm crushing the game of life, people. And I've got a massive reward coming for me because I'm awesome, therefore I delight in the law. And, and people who feel that way, like in the times of Jesus, were called Pharisees. They were hypocrites. They were like, I'm awesome. Of course, of course we love the law. And of course we love putting the law on other people because it shows everyone else how bad you are and how good we are. And that's why we delight in the law. Well, you look at the very last verse of this entire Psalm where he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. So he doesn't feel this way. He's not boasting in himself and saying the reason I delight in the law is because I'm so good at keeping it. So let me suggest three reasons, three, three premises that I think this is why he delights in the law of God. Number one, he delights in the law of God because it reveals the heart and nature of God. 23 times in this psalm, he calls the law God's testimonies. Okay, testimony to what? I mean, when you read a verse and it's like, do this or don't do that, what is that testifying of? And what, what the psalmist understood, what the writer understood is it's testifying to me the nature of God who wrote this and the nature of the world in which I live. And, and, and by the way, I want you to notice he's not just saying I love the word of God in a general sense. He's not saying like, I struggle with a lot of this book. I don't get it either. Um, but I love the promises. I love the good news. He's like, I love the law. I love the hard parts. Again, because the hard parts are teaching me something about the heart of God and the nature of God. Verse 137, he says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Okay, do you hear that? The connection between the nature of the God who gave them and what was given to us. So when he comes to 116, he says, The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So when he's saying it's true, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's upright, it's good, it's pleasant, and it endures forever, why? Because this is who God is. And he loves going back to a book that he can read and say, every one of these verses, even if I have to wrestle with what it means for my life, even if I'm pushing up against it, it's showing me something about the heart and nature of God. And I invite you to do the same. Think about the, the, the rules in scripture that you read and you're like, this is the most onerous thing or the most obnoxious thing or the most backward thing I've ever read in my life. What an embarrassment that this is written in a book called the Bible, okay? Take a deep breath 
and humbly say, God, what might you be trying to teach me about yourself? C.S. Lewis called this engaging the moral order of the divine mind. There's a divine mind, God who has eternally existed, and he's given us a moral order. This is who I am. This is how the world works. And friends, in every case, God is ultimately showing you facets of his love for you. And over and over again, the psalmist is realizing that in this psalm, this is not just you're righteous, you're true, you're holy, you're perfect, I'm not. But it is love. Now, I'll illustrate it this way. We have a lot of house rules, as do most of you, or you grew up under them if you don't have a household right now. We have a lot of household rules. Um, because our little people do not have a lengthy track record of making good decisions for themselves, okay? So there's a lot of rules. I mean, we literally have to tell them the most basic things. And you tell them over and over and over again. And do you think, I mean, I, some of you know me really well. Some of you are kind of getting to know me. Some of you don't know me at all. I was going to say, do you think? I'll just tell you because it doesn't matter what you think. It does. But I was going to ask, do you think that we're just coming up with these rules just because we're like, man, we love controlling these little people with orange hair in our household? No, it's because we love them. And we want to protect them, keep them safe from things that would harm them and put them on a path where later on in life, they are healthy and they're wise and they're loving the kinds of things that they ought to be loving and they're turning away from things that they should be turning away from. So I would say the, the rules in our household don't just exist as an end to themselves. We're not like, yay, look at all the rules. We're like, we love you. And so sometimes we're having to make up rules on the fly because we're like, we never thought that we would ever have to make a rule. Like, don't do that. Like, don't push your, now we have a rule. Don't push your brother down the stairs. Why? Because it happens. Okay. Now, as soon as our kids start to age and demonstrate some measure of rational thought, they have fewer rules. And as, I mean, we have a teenage daughter, as our, our, our aim is that as they come to demonstrate true and godly wisdom, there's like no rules at all. You know, last week we went back to South Carolina and visited my parents, had like a, a wonderful time with them, but they weren't sitting there like, Matt, here's, here's the rules. There's like, you're an adult and we're adults and we can talk like adults and walk in wisdom, Right. But my point is, so all these rules, and hopefully they're diminishing over time, are simply an expression of the Father's love. I think it was Augustine who said, like, love God and do what you want. And you got to hear that the right way. But it's like, yeah, if I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself, then I'm pretty free. Because every other rule in the Bible is simply explaining and narrowing one of those two things, or both. So if I truly love God and I'm experiencing him as father, as the psalmist was doing. So I think that's the first reason that he's delighting. He's like, the more I know of your law, the more I'm seeing your love for me and your fatherly care for me. And I'm seeing the wisdom in what you're telling me to do and to not do. Instead of bucking up against that, I'm learning to embrace that because that helps me embrace the father's heart. Okay? A second and related reason, and I mentioned this, but the, the second reason for delight is because he sees the law is the true path of life and health and peace. 
So verse 93, I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And on and on he goes. And he's saying, why is this true? Why does God's law give you life and flourishing and peace? Because God's laws correspond to reality. And I used the illustration two weeks ago of that that flight instrument on your airplane that's called an attitude indicator, that no matter how the plane is tilted around it, it is showing you this is the horizon, okay? And so when, when we get turned upside down in life and brokenness happens and pain happens and conflict happens and sin happens and hurt happens, and we're like, I don't know which way's up, we can look at the word of God and say, that is true. It's always true. It's always reliable. This is how God's word works, or this is how God's world works. And now I wanna give you like kind of a great big all important caveat, because there's one more important thing here. And that is if you delight in God's law as a means of knowing him, understanding his heart, and knowing the way his world works, if you're doing this with even an ounce of humility, you will begin to recognize more and more, not less and less, how far you fall short of what the law says to do. He's like, do this and you'll live, great. Do this and you'll have peace. Do this and you will flourish and be joyful and be satisfied beyond your wildest imagination. And you're like, great, but I don't do that. I fail. You tell me to always tell the truth. Sometimes I lie or stretch the truth. You tell me not to lust in all these different ways. I struggle with that. You tell me not to put any God above you in my affections. I struggle with that. And so time and time again, this law that promises life actually ends up throwing in your face something very different. And that is that if you're breaking the law, it also requires some kind of just consequence. And that's why a lot of people reject the law. They're like, I don't don't believe that. I don't want the consequences. And if I just disregard God's law, he can't punish me. Um, Basically, they're bumping into something that the apostle Paul describes in Romans 7, where he's like, I started reading the law and I thought it would make me come alive and it kept killing me. For example, he's like, I would not have known what it is to covet unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. Um, Tim Keller uses the illustration. He's like, everybody knows when they're committing adultery. Like nobody just wakes up and is like, oh, you're not my wife. But people don't understand when they're coveting or envious of something. Like I want something that's not mine because it's a a fuzzier line. Um, I I like driving Marty's Volvo for a lot of reasons. Has like these blind spot, has all these indicators that my Jeep does not have. Um, but you ever get on a road and you're like, I haven't seen a speed limit sign for a while. And especially when it's a new road. And so you're just kind of settling into something that feels comfortable, that feels right for you. I like that because I'm like, I'm probably going too fast, but I feel totally in control. So I'm just going to let it ride. And I can't do that in Marty's Volvo because it has all these cameras like on the outside of the car. I don't even know where they are. They're like invisible cameras. And, and they're taking pictures of speed limit signs when you go by them, and then it displays it in the middle of the dashboard, right next to the speedometer. And what happens is, and I don't know what she's got it set to, it's like five or 10 miles an hour over, and it starts like, that speed limit sign starts blinking at you, and it's like, warning, sinner, warning, sinner. 
And that's, that's how I feel. And so it's not, it's not fun to drive her car in that way, okay? And it's that, that whole thing of like, if I didn't know your law, I would feel like I was doing fine. Like I'm being safe. I'm being cautious. I'm not hitting anyone. I'm not doing any damage. But there's the law saying, you failed. So I want to close with this. I think the ultimate reason the psalmist delights in the law of God and the ultimate reason you and I can and should delight in the law of God is because it drives us to grace in the person and work of Jesus. Hear me out. When you're tired of failure, there's Jesus. When you're tired of faking it, there's Jesus. And we're actually doing both. We're failing But some of us just admit that failure and feel terrible and run from the Bible and run from the church because you're like, that environment, that group of people, that book make me feel like a failure. I don't want to feel like a failure. Some of you are like, I'm good at faking it, the the pharisaical thing. I'll just pretend like I'm better than everyone else. I'll pretend like I'm crushing it. And I want you to hear me out in closing. I am passionate about delighting in God's law in and of itself because it's showing me a God who is faithful and true and righteous and good and beautiful and kind and has profligately filled his creation with good and beautiful and tasty things, okay? So we should say, like, God, I I love your law, even when it reveals you as Lord, when you are revealed as you're the master, you're the sovereign, you're God, so you get to make the rules. I still wanna love it for that reason. But hear what I'm saying. The law simultaneously is not just revealing God as Lord, Master, Sovereign. It's revealing Him as Father. It's revealing Him as someone who cares about you so deeply, He will only put rules and testimonies and commands in your life if it steers you away from things that are ultimately unhealthy and defeating into things that cause your flourishing and the flourishing of everyone around you. But what I'm saying here, last of all, is that we, we not only say your Lord, your Father, we also get to say your Savior. Because everywhere I'm reading the law and delighting in your law, and I'm like, ah, I fell short. Ah, I did that again. The point is not to sit there in your disgust and self-loathing and guilt and shame. The point is to go to Jesus and see, like, you took my sin. You took those consequences, and you gave me life, and you gave me forgiveness. And when I'm bumping into things in your word that remind me that I'm a failure and that remind me that sometimes I'm a fake, there is grace. There is patience, there is mercy, there is compassion, there is love over and over and over again. And so what Paul concludes, not here in this Psalm, obviously, but in the New Testament, he's like, when the law is crushing me, this is an opportunity for me to boast in Christ. Because the more I sin, I don't wanna sin, but the more I sin and confess my sin, the more grace comes into my life. And the bigger and bigger the cross of Jesus gets in my life, he gets more glory, he gets more credit, he gets more of my love, more of my delight. And I said the promise of delight is the last point, and I wanna just simply show you verses one and two again. He says, blessing, that is happiness, flourishing, satisfaction comes to those who keep God's law. Or Jesus, put it this way, leading off his most famous sermon in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And ultimately, we're satisfied because we find that satisfaction in the person of Jesus and his grace. So friends, Delight in the law because it's showing us God. Delight in the law because it's showing us how the world actually works. 
but delight in the law ultimately because even where you and I fail, and especially where you and I fail, it brings us that much closer to Jesus, that much more in love with how kind and how patient and how enough he is for everything. Let's pray. Father, help us to see your word in a different light. Everyone in here had a father. Hopefully many of them were good fathers. Even in the instance that they were not, um, we, we crave healthy parental relationships, the kind of parents who give us boundaries, who love us enough to say no to some things, knowing there's gonna be friction there for a little while or maybe a season while kids kind of figure out, well, my parents do have some wisdom that I don't have and I can see in hindsight, they actually really do love me and care about me. They're not just making rules because they're mad or they're stingy or they're mean. Lord, turn our hearts to receive your law this way where we see you not just as God, we do see you as God. We do believe you're sovereign. And because you're the creator of everything that else that exists, you have every right to tell us what you want. But your law is not arbitrary. It is for our good. It's for our health. It's for our flourishing. It's for our eternal life. But thank you most of all that when we read your law and it crushes us with the weight of our brokenness, there's always grace for those who simply turn and accept the work of Jesus. Say, Lord, I, I believe that I'm a sinner, just meaning I'm a lawbreaker. I see your rules. I haven't kept them. But you forgive. You wash us clean. And we're thankful for that. In a moment, as we take communion together, Jesus, we are remembering that we are clean in spite of what the law says because of the work of Jesus, that you came as the perfect law keeper. You did everything we should have done. You did it perfectly. You did it every time. And still you took the weight of sin and the curse of sin on yourself and you went to a cross and you died to set us free and to give us life and health. So Lord, we, we remember your death, Jesus, until you come because it's your death and your resurrection that ultimately lead us out of failure and faking it into a life of flourishing. So be doing in us right now that renewing work, that transforming work, that healing and gracious work of your spirit that Miguel talked about last week through your word. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.